0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Jerry Freeman. Jerry is an old friend of mine from TM Movement Days. I'll read his bio here. He's been practicing Transcendental Meditation and the advanced techniques of TM, called the TM Cities Program, beginning shortly before turning 19, over 40 years ago. He was trained by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi as a teacher of TM the following year lived for some years in semi-monastic program Marshi founded, which is where I knew him from, and has continued to study Marshi's teachings to this day. He writes about Marshi's insights into the development of higher states of consciousness as they relate to today's discussion of Advaita, Vedanta, awakening, self-realization and enlightenment. He is presently working on a book on this subject tentatively titled The Enlightenment Puzzle, What Everyone Should Know About Awakening. In the book's introduction he states, What I have to say here is not my own invention. What I will say here is not an official presentation of Maharshi's teaching, as it includes numerous observations and conclusions that are my own. However, the great insights about awakening, human consciousness, enlightenment, etc. are not mine, they are Maharshi's. Jerry supports a family of adopted children working as a musical instrument maker. He makes penny whistles. His penny whistles are recommended by many Irish music instructors for their students, as they are affordable and very high quality and they are played in performance and recordings by many of the most renowned performers of Irish music. So that's an intro to Jerry. Welcome Jerry. Hi, Rick. It's nice to see you. Good to see you in such a beautiful backdrop. Yeah, you can just almost see Mount Aranachala over there, off to the, to the side there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jerry's in Coventry, Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut myself, southern Connecticut. In fact,
1: you, you instructed the mother of my significant
0: other. Right. Yeah. Uh, in
1: TM. She lived to be 93 and she meditated twice a day, every day of her life since the day you taught her TM.
0: Cool. Chip off the old block, because I've done the same <laughs> since I've Yeah. Done. So we're going to start, as we often do in these interviews, by just uh, sketching out your personal story, You know, um, particularly with regard to spirituality and development of consciousness and all. And I believe you'd, you'd like to actually start back in your childhood days.
1: Yeah, not uh, anything really unusual to say about that, Uh, probably quite typical of of the people that you interview. Uh, I I can't report any um, special experiences when I was a child. I grew up in a conventionally religious uh, Christian household, starting from, I would say, pretty young. I just kind of looked at that, and I, I never got a sort of a, of an emotional connection. I never felt like I, I knew Jesus or got religion or or any of the things that people around me seemed to be experiencing and, and felt really strongly about. And I was kind of just wondering, well what is this? And it, it doesn't quite make sense to me. I, I see these people are experiencing something. I tended to be rather skeptical, even even cynical, probably from about the age of three. I was really looking behind the scenes to try to figure out, well, this doesn't quite work for me. There must be something deeper or at least, you know, not to be judgmental about it, something that's more suitable to me than, than what I was, I was surrounded by. Around the age of 15, at that point, I was really quite disillusioned. And, and, you know, this was things were going on. There was the Vietnam War and a lot of generational conflict and, and so forth. As an assignment for, for our high school class, we read W. Somerset Maugham's book, The Razor's Edge, which if some of your viewers are perhaps younger and, and aren't familiar with that, it's a story of a, a young man who had fought in World War I and had a spiritual crisis as a result of that, he essentially renounced worldly things and went looking for the, the greater truth and went to India and essentially became enlightened. Mom did a beautiful job of really mapping those issues and how the Eastern approach towards enlightenment addressed them, at least in a way that could be absorbed by popular culture at the time. Reading that book really crystallized for me. I, I just knew, having read that book, yes, yes, that is, that is it. That's what I want. That's where I'm going. That's what... What my life is about but i had no idea really what to do next and i'll make a comment here also it's more than an ancient sidelight there's a guru in the book the razor's edge that the young man meets and, and has his his breakthrough of connecting with something deeper the inspiration for that character and really the inspiration for the entire book was a visit by w somerset mom to ramana maharshi in 1928 he was so struck by the depth and, and power of, of Ramana Maharshi's silence and wisdom that he wrote that book, and it's considered to be one of his two great masterpieces. Now, that is something that I only found out really not terribly long ago, just, just in the last several years. But I was struck by the fact that it really reflects the greatness of, of Ramana Maharshi, that he could have that influence on someone who saw him only for a couple of days, such that mom put into writing his, his impressions from that, and that changed the direction of my entire life. So that many steps away from Ramana Maharshi, he's able to have that effect on the direction of, of a life.
0: He definitely sent out some ripples.
1: Mm, yeah, so there's that. But I didn't know what to do. I, I knew that crystallized. I knew where I, where I needed to go, but I didn't know. I couldn't find a, a path to walk on. And then, of course, one of the major events of our generation, the Beatles, came to Transcendental Meditation in Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. At that point, there was just no resistance at all. That, that, that was just clearly, that's it. That's what I want. I'm going to learn Transcendental Meditation. But at that time, maybe I was uh, 16 or so by then, there was no teacher of TM anywhere near me, and I didn't know how you learn TM. There was also at the same time, a, a drug culture uh, that was flourishing, and I was a high school student, and uh, then a, a recent uh, high school graduate, people around me were talking about, you know, very mystical things, they were talking about um, experiences of, of going beyond, and, and uh, some, some huge transcendental opening up that they'd had, and I sort of watched them do that, and I saw that Some of them were getting really badly strung out and they were still pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, trying to, I'm going to have the the big trip and then that'll be it and I'll be there. And I looked at that and I came up with a set of criteria really that were quite specific. I concluded, um, this is as a 16 or 17 year old, that there must be a capacity in the human nervous system to maintain an awakened state of consciousness that must be an inherent capacity of the human nervous system these drugs that seem to be triggering something like that are doing something artificial and because it's artificial it's doing a a violence to the nervous system so the idea if i want to be enlightened if i want to awaken and and live in that state of of awakenness, then I can't use drugs for that because I'm gonna, you know, burn up the 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 house that has to contain that awakening. So there was that. Then another part of it, I knew that there were books and practices that that talked about what you need to do and they seemed quite arduous to me. I looked at that and I thought, well, number one, this has to be a natural state, as I imagine it this works. Number two I'm really lazy, and this is myself as a, as a you know, teenager, um, and I just, if it's going to make me have to work too hard, I, I'm just, I'm not going to be suited to it, you know? I'm just not the right person for this, but I know that I, I want the result. There was a, somebody that I encountered, and I was talking to him. I must have been maybe 17, and he commented something about, meditation and transcendental meditation and he was doing transcendental meditation and I said oh oh do you can you tell me how to do it and he said yeah and he said what you do is you lie down and you tense up all of your muscles and then you relax your muscles starting at the tips of your toes very gradually one one muscle at a time until you're completely relaxed and that's transcendental meditation and I thought (laughs) fooey i thought something a little more colorful than that and i forgot about it completely and and just oh it doesn't exist you know that that isn't going to work that's that's not something that i can i can make
0: work they called that progressive relaxation it was kind of popular in those days yeah i I found that out later but uh it it was it
1: was too much work for me then i went to to school I, i i went to college at uh uh, Indiana University. Not very long after that, I was um, out of my dorm room and came back nah, fairly late and I was tired and I was mad about something, you know, I, I don't recall what it was, there was you know, some going on that didn't work the way I had hoped and I came stumping back to my room and I just wanted to go to bed and I had a, a, a roommate there and, and he had somebody in the room who was sitting on my bed. <laughs> you know, what uh, so I, I was really pissed off. And he was talking. It was just a really sweet, very clear-spoken, gentle sort of a person. At first, I was just tuning him out. Just when is this guy going to get off my bed? And he was talking about transcendental meditation. He was talking about TM, and he was explaining it. And he was saying, and, and the nature of the mind is just to naturally go to whatever is the most satisfying that's available to it and so tm uses a mantra a sound in a way that allows the mind to effortlessly disengage from its outer focus and it just naturally then just settles down and settles down because as it settles the more subtle it becomes the more pleasing the more satisfying that that experience that sensation becomes until eventually it transcends completely and you experience pure consciousness. And I thought, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's what I want, that's what I want. And uh, he had been meditating for four months, and, and I thought that was really just awesome, that there was somebody who had been meditating that long, and he must truly be <laughs> enlightened. You know? And by the way, day before yesterday, it was uh, 42 years. Uh, since I learned TM, I, I learned on October 17, uh, 1971. So I learned TM, and it, it definitely was, you know, that was that was the right technique for me. No, no question about that. And as soon as I could, as you've already as you've already read from the that little bio, I went to see Maharshi. He was in California every summer at that time. And I spent a month with Maharshi there, a fairly large group there. It's not like I you know, sat right at his elbow, but that was quite profound. And that also was a preliminary course that was required to go to TM teacher training. And so I went to TM teacher training.
0: So before you go into that, is there, was there anything particularly noteworthy uh, to, that you want to mention in passing here about anything you experienced or you want to just kind of carry on and we'll, we'll get into that stuff later?
1: Only that I found that it really matched what Maharshi was talking about. It wasn't very long after I started meditating that I really began to find that that transcendental consciousness that you dip into when you meditate just became more and more and more familiar. So all the way along, I felt that Maharshi was describing very well how this practice works and um, what most people can realistically expect to happen if, if they're regular in the practice.
0: Yeah, As you know, I interviewed a couple of Ramana Maharshi experts recently, Michael James and David Godman, and um, Michael James had an interesting definition of Atma-vachara in self-inquiry, which Ramana it was his main teaching, which he, he said the best interpretation or translation of Vichara is investigation. Rather than inquiry, which implies a kind of an experiential progression, and um, and then uh, David Gottman gave this analogy of if you want to tame a bull and keep it in the barn, don't beat it and and, and you know force it or, or anything. Just give it some fresh grass, and the bull will follow you into the barn. And you know so we kind of touched upon the notion of uh, the, the the traditionally described blissful nature of the self, Ananda, and and. That can be used to our advantage, if we go about it properly, to just allow the the mind to effortlessly fall into that state, because the mind encounters greater charm as it moves in that direction, so it doesn't have to be coerced in any way.
1: Well, I feel that that in popular um, awakening or Advaita or self-realization culture, um, the mind tends to be treated as sort of an adversary. And I think that's problematic and, and, and it reflects, I feel, the, the need for the most suitable technique for, for each individual. And that may not always be the same technique, but if a technique requires some amount of, of you know, sort of straining or it's, it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or it's not bringing that, Contact that, that dipping in to that most silent level, I, I suggest that people take a look at TM. In particular, there's this, this traditional description that the mind is a monkey, and the mind just goes bounding here and there and everywhere and everywhere. Somehow we have to uh, tame this monkey mind. But if you really know about monkeys, there's a logic. To whatever, what a monkey does you know the monkey goes bounding around looking for something more interesting you know looking for something so all you have to do to, to tame a monkey is to give the monkey something really sweet and the monkey will go there this aspect of the nature of the mind i think reflects a misunderstanding that has really kind of penetrated and and permeated uh, the efforts that that we make to try to reach that deep silence And I watched both of those interviews. I I thought they were wonderful. Uh, And David Godman was was talking about you don't get to that silence by somehow struggling with the mind or fighting with the mind. And of course, there's that very often quoted saying that the self reveals itself to itself by itself alone. And it's the attractive power of the, the bliss consciousness that in any successful Practice, is going to bring that result, regardless of whether the practice is trying to do something you know, with the focus or trying to do something with watching or, or whatever. It's always going to be the natural tendency of the mind to go to that most satisfying bliss consciousness that's going to, to bring it there.
0: Yeah, and in a way you can't blame these teachers who criticize practices and, and say that they're only going to reinforce the notion of the practicer. Of a practicer because because if they're, if they 're referring to some sort of practice which involves effort indeed it 's like trying to you know cal- calm choppy water by pushing down the waves you 're only going to create more waves, so they 're absolutely right in, in, in that critique, but not all practices involve doing that, and therefore not, not all of them do reinforce the the, uh, the sense of a, a, a me isolated practicer, some of them allow that those rigid boundaries to dissolve and disappear, leaving the the unbounded self in its pure state. Yeah, it's
1: important not to generalize about practices because they're not all the same. And one person may be particularly well-suited to one practice and another person may be particularly well-suited to uh, another practice. Um, You know, I can just tell you that I was just perfectly well-suited to the practice uh, that Maharshi taught, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for
0: that. Yeah, and ironically, some people they'll do a practice great ardor and diligence uh, for quite some time, like Adyashanti. I'm thinking of, you know, he was you know gum ho as as much as anybody could be, and really working hard at his meditation, and but it, it involved effort. And finally, his breakthrough came when he just kind of gave up and uh, it, there was a slingshot effect you know so you know maybe that's one way of going about it you do something which involves struggle and strain and when you finally get tired of it you, you give up and and something profound happens yeah but, it's but... almost
1: like it's almost like the description of of what happens when this is kind of a, a reverse metaphor but if you struggle against the quicksand you'll end up mired in the quicksand the way to get out of quicksand is to relax and just settle down and be very still and very slowly, because it's quicksand, it isn't water. Just swim very gently and you'll find that you don't sink into the quicksand. If you're struggling against the mind, then you're mired in the quicksand. It's also the way but, to escape a riptide,
0: you know. Well, you, don't yeah, try, okay. you don't try to swim against the riptide, you'll drown. You, you just relax and, and you know, you'll eventually get drifted off to the side and then the riptide will <laughs> no longer be in its, uh, its current. This is very useful. I'll, I'll have to keep it. Yeah, you—you you probably saved my life. <laughs> so you went off to teacher training.
1: I did, and um, I taught TM for a few years, uh, full time. And I'm—I'm I'm terrible at remembering exactly when something started and when something stopped, and you know what year it was, and all of that. So I can't help you with that. I loved that. Uh, it was it was just wonderful to see people from all different backgrounds and situations uh, meditate for the first time. It was a common experience. I remember one person said, uh, meditated and, and uh, opened her eyes, and she says, I feel so relaxed, like I never feel, <laughs> you know. And somebody else said, it's like warm water on parched earth, you know, like that. This might be a good time to just give you a, a a little quote this is a friend of ours that's actually a spiritual teacher himself he he learned uh, whom I actually
0: interviewed a few years ago but uh, we don't have his permission so I won't mention his name but you go ahead with a quote
1: well actually we do have permission it's it's sage Mahasada Um, in your interview he's, he's Raven Mahasada and he said you know I've been meditating more than 25 years the meditation I had during the private instruction period during the very first session of the introductory TM class, was the best meditation sitting I have had in my entire life. That kind of experience left a strong impression and points to something quite profound. A whole new level of something was opened up to me during that time. It brings tears to my eyes just writing about it. Well, it brings tears to my eyes just reading about it. Uh, He's such a sweet soul, and I I was just thrilled to get that report from him. And also the local teachers here, the, the Hartford TM Center teachers, from time to time, you know, every few months, someone comes to them probably about our age or maybe in some instances a little younger, who's been practicing different practices at different times, often, you know, quite arduously for years and years, very seriously. They learn TM and they say, Something like, this is a very sophisticated technique. This is, this is a very good meditation. I had no idea. I just thought, TM, 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 yeah, it's out there, you know, stress release, stress release. But uh, the experienced meditators who have been practicing various kinds of meditation, who, who then come to TM, uh, often report that they're really very pleased with it.
0: And incidentally, I just want to mention. That, I mean, this isn't gonna. This interview isn't going to be one big commercial for TM. we you know, obviously Jerry and I have both benefited from it a lot. But we're both very open-minded as to the value of other teachings and uh, the, you know, legitimacy of of whatever path might suit one. As Jerry was saying a little while ago. Uh, that was that was the commercial break. Yeah. <laughs> and now we can get back to our regular scheduled
1: program. Yeah.
0: But I just wanted to say in, in response to what you just said, in a way, the, the ease and simplicity of it has been a point of criticism for many people because they, you know, many people have thought, well, something so easy can't really be heavy duty. In fact, I thought that myself. Uh, when I first learned, even though I was really profoundly benefiting from it, I thought, okay, well, this is really great, but I, I got to get onto the real stuff because I want to get enlightened. So I was like looking into joining Zen monasteries and stuff. And, uh, you know, this can't really be the ultimate teaching because it's so darn simple. Uh, but, you know, I eventually changed my thinking on that. But anyway, just the fact that it's simple and effortless doesn't mean that it's lightweight and kid stuff.
1: Well, one, one thing about it is, Anywhere you go, a, a really good teacher is going to say, there's nothing to do. You, you cannot, by your own efforts, awaken your, yourself.
0: Which makes and it TM, sound like you're saying, don't do anything. But that's, right. that's, there's a it, subtlety it, to it. That's not quite what's being said. The actual
1: technique of transcendental meditation, you know, effortlessness sounds very nice, but the, the fact of it is, it is a technique that profoundly involves not doing it allows the self to reveal itself
0: and how now one might ask okay but yeah you're thinking a mantra isn't that doing that's the technique
1: that's why you have to you know you have to go through the steps of instruction to learn how you make use of that to allow the mind effortlessly to settle down into that more blissful silence so then i taught for some few years and i went ahead and, and learned the TM Cities program, there was this project I had, during the time I took off to raise some money to, to go to this uh, advanced course with Maharshi, I had begun my career as a, as a woodworker and a carpenter and spent a couple of years learning that. And there was this really important project that people were being called for to build this dome in, uh, in Iowa. I came to Fairfield. I came back to Fairfield. I'd been there numerous times for that project, the Maharshi Patanjali Golden Dome of Pure Knowledge, which is a a rather famous structure by now. It was discovered that I could do things, I could build things. In a way, I'm more comfortable working with my hands and and making things and building things than I am going out and giving lectures and setting up things and, and that sort of thing. Together with uh, a couple of other people, uh, Mac Sutherland and Jeff Murphy, we were in charge of the design and the, the structural design and the construction of the wall all the way around. And we had to figure out there were, I can't remember, 135 windows or something like that. And we had to figure out how to make the arches. And Mac was a boat builder, and uh, he knew all about how to make wood go in nonlinear shapes. So he, he, he mastered that. I caught the attention of the people that were organizing various projects and was invited to go to Washington, D.C. for some renovation work that was going to be done so that there would be facilities there. And the purpose of this building, this, this dome, and the purpose of the renovation work that we did to two large facilities in Washington, D.C., was to provide a, a setting where large numbers of people could meditate and practice the TM studies program to try to create coherence in collective consciousness and try to do something to reverse uh, some of the negative trends in the world there's now quite a bit of research, good published research, I think fifty uh, or so studies in um, just very standard well-respected journals uh, the uh, Journal of Conflict Resolution and, and um, sociology journals and psychology journals and so forth that show that there actually is an effect and. and you can work with it, you, you can bring large groups of people together in conflict areas and have them meditate. You know, they have this saying, I, can't, I don't know the Sanskrit, but in the vicinity of sattva, enmity ceases. Something along those lines. And you could actually see that work. You, you get a large group and, and they're together for a few weeks or a month or two. And you begin to see uh, in the proximity of that group. You'll see some change if there's a, if there's a conflict going on or if there's violent crime or, or some such thing.
0: Yeah, and the underlying principle is not just that people are smiling at each other and the, and the ripple effect is going out, it's that consciousness is a, is a fundamental field, uh, really the most fundamental field in creation, and that by having a group of people uh, experience and enliven that um, within themselves, they They enliven that field for the entire vicinity. It's kind of like as if in the in a forest the the ground in in a certain vicinity were somehow made more fertile, then all the plants begin to benefit from that and begin to to grow more heartily and so that's the idea that you know criminals just for some reason are a little bit less inclined to commit criminal acts if that field within which they reside has been enlivened a bit.
1: Right. And that's the field where everything is connected. Ultimately, there's only one, you know, in physics it would be called the unified field that gives rise to all of the specific fields of, of, you know, matter and energy. In subjective terms, ultimately, there's only one consciousness. You know, there are names for that. It could be called Brahman or it could be called transcendental consciousness. But when that's enlivened in one person, then it connects... To every other conscious person and even if that other person is in a very dark state of consciousness not very awake because of the fact that there is that connection it's going to reverberate it's going to resonate and it's going to help them wake up we mentioned Ramana Maharshi and there are many other examples Uh, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi was another when you're around them their influence is not simply by the words that they're saying or by the mood that they create in their room It's like you're walking into something that's almost liquid. It has a silence that has an intensity to it where you know that there's something at a very deep universal level that is intensely alive. It connects you at a deep level inside yourself. It's not like it connects you through the mind or the senses or something like that. It connects you on your own basic fundamental consciousness.
0: Yeah, it completely reorients and, you. Know, and, you know, David Godman, of course, was telling stories about Papaji and Nisargadatta and, and, of, and, of course, Ramana. And That was the main thing, was was being in their presence. It wasn't so much what they were saying and, and just sort of the, the influence of being, the osmotic effect of being in their presence is what really transformed you. And a lot of times, and Ramana, Ramana himself said his main teaching was silence. He didn't just mean not talking. He meant that deafening silence that is experienced in the presence of someone who is so profoundly established in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very real. It's very real. Back to the the sequence, I worked for some number of years doing these renovation projects and during that time, Maharshi developed this semi-monastic program, the Thousand Headed Purusha program uh, that you and I both participated in for a number of years. And I can't tell you when I, you could say, joined that, that group because we were just absorbed into it. We were just told, you know, okay, you're, you're in the Purusha program now. And I, I don't know when that was. It just, you know, somewhere along the way. And I was there for, for some number of years. The thing about that, number one, there was intensive practice uh, for some hours every day. And uh, we were also just completely immersed in Maharshi's teaching. Uh, At times he was with us. When he wasn't with us, whatever discourses he had done, almost everything Maharshi ever said is is audiotaped or videotaped. This is being organized now and it might take another decade or so before it all really gets completely organized and indexed. And there's a tremendous trove of uh, material there. And we would have the videotapes as they were coming out. So, you know, every night for some number of hours after whatever work we were doing or whatever practice we had done, we would just be immersed in that. And I feel as though that was the period when I was able to connect the things that Maharshi was saying and the ways that he was talking about things that sounded really quite abstract and maybe technical, talking about Vedic literature or how the Vedic syllables emerge from the um, primordial base of, of, you know, that the universe comes out of and, um, very abstract kind of sounding things. But I began to realize that Maharshi spoke in a way that could be meaningful on numerous levels simultaneously. And I, I sort of caught on. I, I, the way I would put it is, at, at some point, I decided, well, he's been talking about this stuff and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, and I've been thinking, well, he's just, he's just got this fascination with this Veda thing, and he just goes on and on and on about it, and then I thought, well, you know, he's making me sit here and listen to this. I think it's conceivable that he's actually trying to tell me something. <laughs> and that was a kind of a breakthrough and I started to think okay he's saying this how does that relate to me how does that relate to my experience how does that relate to my life in that context a lot of what Maharshi talked about just came to life and uh, really set the tone that has been the focus really of the rest of my life one thing that I think is is significant is people have a tendency to think of quote-unquote, experiences of consciousness or or awakening to be something that you meditate and you do your practice and you look at what what that was like and what happened uh, there. That's your experiences. And then you just go about your day and you do whatever you're doing. But it's all experience. And the principles, this especially might be meaningful to the TM community because we have a tendency to just do our program and then go out and just forget about program. But it's all interconnected. And the things that Maharshi said about consciousness and how consciousness and higher states of consciousness unfold and how consciousness interacts with consciousness and all that, that's happening all the time. That's happening 24-7. That really has set kind of the way that I go about and have gone about now for some decades, living my life and approaching just anything that happens that comes along I left Purusha, um I think it was around 1993. I, I had a I had a health uh, um, breakdown for a period, and um, I I needed to deal with that, and uh, so I, I had to leave. I had to leave Purusha. and I was just devastated because my complete identity was: this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm this Vedic monk, and you know that's that's it. The only way that I possibly could have gone and, and, and got, gone out of Prussia if something had forced me to go. And I found, it took me a while to readjust and find my identity in a maybe a little more universal way.
0: You left but, Prusia. And-
1: yeah, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to piece that back together again. What I found was that I really had received a pretty complete package of practices and understanding, reference from, from the things that I had been immersed in from Maharshi's teaching, it was enough. You know, you could say, oh, it would be better if you didn't have to leave. And all that, but that's just the way it was, and there's a way where you know, everything is as it should be, and that clearly, even though it was, it was traumatic in a way for me to have to to make that transition, I found that I had the whole world you know, I was no longer in this somewhat closed environment, and lo and behold, everything that Maharshi had talked about I found just reverberating and resonating through everything that I encountered and that's been wonderful it's it's been a It's been a wonderful process and, and a wonderful journey, which never ends you know it's It's still going on, and it just gets wonderfuler and wonderfuler
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's that's that. Cool. I know you you kind of want to. There's a delicate balance here between talking about your own experience and talking about these principles of knowledge that uh, pertain to your experience. And there are a lot there are a lot of teachers and spiritual people. Like if you interview the Dalai Lama, he's not going to say I'm in this state of consciousness and and, and yeah. so on because there's there's a certain humility and it's it's actually built into the Buddhist tradition that. You know, you just, yeah. you don't make proclamations. So we'll, we'll proceed and your words can speak for themselves and, and if they convey some authority on the base, you know, some experiential authority as opposed to just philosophical familiarity with the things we're talking about, then if that, if that comes through to people, then fine, they, they can pick it up that way. If they, think okay. that, if they think that you're just kind of a philosophically astute guy then, and they, they're, they want to leave it at that, then okay, they can do that, too.
1: Sure, and some people think I'm not such a philosophically astute
0: guy. Right. <laughs> and, right. I think right. I'm really full of beans. In the notes you sent me about what we might talk about, the next thing you uh, mentioned were you know, seven major states of consciousness. And the confusion about states, which has led, led to the idea that experiences of higher states of consciousness are inevitably transient. As we 'll discuss, Margie outlined seven major states of consciousness i don 't know if that 's the only valid roadmap. Uh, i 'm sure there are other ways of breaking it, breaking that. it down there are um, other,
1: There are other dimensions that you can also map and i 've seen some of your the people that you 've interviewed uh, do that and, and just just beautifully and it, it really kind of fills in a picture of you know quite a quite a wonderfully complex humanity as uh, it goes through this expansion of, of all of the potentials on all of the dimensions that are, that are there.
0: Yeah. And, and there's no end to the, the degree of detail one can investigate. I mean, you can, if somebody asks you how do you get from New York to LA, or New York to San Francisco, you can say, well, take I-80, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's the short version of the explanation. But then, obviously, that, the details can be expanded to you know, never-ending degrees. Uh, if you want to really map out the trip in in precise detail. So the whole thing about states of consciousness, uh, you know, Marshy's seven states analogy, or seven states structure, is a bit of a take I-80 explanation, but he he went into it in some detail. But still, you know, people who now have actually experientially traversed that map say, well, there's a lot more richness and detail than I first anticipated.
1: Exactly, and I think that's such an important point and it's, a, it's about pointers. Inevitably, the description of a reality is always going to be different from the reality, and it's really important not to attach yourself to the expectation that, that you've developed. No matter how familiar you are with the description, and, and no matter how clearly you understand intellectually, and, and I'm not suggesting that that means you've misunderstood it, but the actual reality is always different. It, it's always bigger. It's often complex in situations where you thought something was going to be completely simple. You thought that the whole world was just somehow going to be some kind of homogeneous dissolve into pure being. And guess what? It did. The whole world dissolved into pure being. And it's still there. All the diversity and all... You find out that as you get on a granular level that there's almost more diversity. There's, there's almost more going on. And everything is completely simple. So when we talk about the development of these states of consciousness as, as Maharshi delineated them, there is this tendency to, to kind of pin a very simplistic expectation and that causes some i would say confusion because sometimes people really kind of don't know where they are because they think oh well this is going to have to be exactly like this the other thing i'll say about this is the descriptions this is characteristic of the vedic literature it's characteristic of buddhist literature i think it's almost universal that the descriptions of something will tend to be cut and dried you'll say for example, in Buddhism, that this kind of awakened person, there's a certain name for it, and I don't know that tradition, so I don't have have the names in my memory, that person is only going to be born again once, and then they'll be enlightened. And this category is going to be enlightened in this lifetime, but they're only a middling level, and they're really not qualified to teach. And this one is at a higher level, and they're qualified to teach. and, And it goes like that. But the gradations, you know, it's not like you just walk through a door and now you're in a different place. It's more of a sliding scale. And there's a lot like that as these states of consciousness unfold. They may blend a little bit one into another. They may come along in in a kind of gradual way so it isn't really quite clear when a certain threshold was crossed. So it's important not to pin too tightly to those very precise descriptions and expectations.
0: Yeah. Couple of comments here, one is uh, something you said a minute ago, which is that when the actual experience dawns, it may not resemble your your expectation, such that you might not actually realize it had dawned i't I like i 'm thinking of suzanne Siegel's book Collision with the Infinite, where you know she had actually You know, been a TM teacher and all that. She had all that knowledge. But then she she kind of drifted away from it. And at at a certain point, she was getting on a bus in Paris. And all of a sudden, she had this profound awakening into what we would call cosmic consciousness. And it totally freaked her out, you know, because there was this loss of a personal self. And she tried for 10 years to locate a personal self. And she had no idea what was happening to her. She thought she was crazy. The whole thing had actually been explained to her in, in minute detail some years prior. But obviously, she had formed a conception of it, which didn't match the reality of it and so it ca- caused you a lot of disturbance
1: <laughs> let's go through the actual how this unfolds okay the first thing i'll say here we have good understanding of the development that happens human being who's we um civilization okay we have embryology which is a very highly developed science such that you know every cell as it differentiates it's known that you know this group of cells is going to differentiate into this these organs and and so forth and the you know the the brain begins to develop in certain ways at a certain number of days and weeks and so forth into gestation and so forth we've got that map and we've absolutely got it we have it with developmental psychology where you know we know what an infant you know to a pretty good degree we know at what stage the infant begins to recognize that it can control things in its environment. You know, that's when they like to start throwing things um, <laughs> and watch, oh, it landed over there, you know. But, you know, there's, there's a development through the stages of childhood and adolescence and, and so forth. Moral reasoning begins to develop at a, at a certain stage. And that, that's known. There's a good map. And, of course, it's deepening all the time. But we, we have a, a good sense of, of that unfoldment. What we don't have as a culture or a body of knowledge is a good systematic understanding of further unfoldment, which I have to say I'm absolutely certain is just as natural as the development of an embryo. It's just as natural as those stages of childhood development. And I think in the the future, perhaps some decades as we go along, but I, I think in the future, hopefully, this will begin to be mapped in a similar way, and it'll become just kind of standard.
0: Seems like some cultures had mapped it, you know, maybe certain ancient cultures, but yeah. uh, it's such a different language and the, and you know and the culture was so different that it hasn't we haven't been able to translate it into our yeah. current culture and language. And you know, we we read these Vedic texts and all, and it's just there sort of needs to be a new seed to yield a new crop. You know, to, yeah. Well, the other
1: thing about it is that these states of consciousness are uncommon. And it doesn't mean that they're abnormal or unnatural. Uh, you could almost think of it as a, as a kind of arrested development. But if we think in terms of lifetimes, then it seems more natural that this, this development just, just takes longer. And it may take more than a lifetime. And you may not see it uh, if you just look at the average of humanity.
0: And if, if they were common, I mean, if, if 9% of the people in the world were in some stage of awakening or enlightenment, then it would be like, yeah, what's the big deal? We, we understand this. Yeah. And, our, and our psychologists and so on would have it all very nicely mapped yeah. out.
1: Just to make this simple, I'm going to pin this to some background that may be familiar to people that have some background in the, uh, the Vedic or uh, yoga or Vedanta traditions, because uh, that's what I'm familiar with. But very simply, we can number them. The first state of consciousness is deep sleep. And the nature of deep sleep is that the senses are asleep, the mind is asleep, and the body is basically inert, is, you know, not active. You can find that in the Upanishads, it's called Sushupta. Not much to say about it. Then in a different state of consciousness is dreaming, which is the second state of consciousness. In Sanskrit, that's called Swapna or taijasa. In dreaming state of consciousness, The mind is awake, but the senses are asleep. So there's a lot of experience, but that experience is only happening internally, in in, in the mind. And you say asleep to the world, you know, so the outer world is not accessible to that state of consciousness. And then the waking state of consciousness, which is called Jagrat or Vishva. Vishva means world, so it's interesting that it's quite a common saying, you know, oh, he was asleep to the world. Well, okay, what being awake is called, in Sanskrit, being awake to the world. So those are the three, you could say, common states of consciousness or relative states of consciousness. Everyone experiences them. And the significant thing about a state of consciousness is that as a, a general principle, they're mutually exclusive. You know, there can be some, you know, drifting in between and, and so forth. But generally speaking, um, if you're in the dreaming state of consciousness, you're dreaming, you know. You you can't wake yourself up from a dream by dreaming that you woke up. You know, all that'll happen if you dream you woke up is that you might find yourself in a dream room that you woke up in. I've done that. Yeah.
0: I've, I've like dreamt that I got up and brushed my teeth and did all my bathroom stuff, and then I realized, oh wait a minute, I'm still sleeping. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 So. These states of consciousness, each one is is really complete and and in a way self sufficient. You can't just simply decide that, okay, now I'm gonna go from this state of consciousness to this state of consciousness to this state of consciousness. You know, you may be, you know, have some way that you go to sleep that you know works for you every time, but it's not because you sit there and somehow think, sleep and then you're asleep. And that's that's important to understand. Now, then there's the fourth state of consciousness, which is also described in the same Upanishads, which is transcendental pure consciousness. That is just silence. Turiya, right? Turiya. Sometimes Samadhi, it's called. Sometimes it's called Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which means Samadhi without sensation. And that's the state where the mind is completely silent, the senses are completely silent, but consciousness is fully awake and that's that state of transcendental consciousness that has the quality of bliss consciousness and that's if you want to say the goal of a meditation practice is to develop that contact dip into that samadhi and cultivate the ability of the nervous system to sustain that now in the Upanishads then there's something that's called Tita, which literally means beyond the fourth and that's a general expression we can discuss what is beyond the fourth and we'll discover that there are uh, several stages beyond the fourth which we can find reference to in other parts of the of the vedic literature gradually with experience of that contact with the fourth state of consciousness it begins to develop that one can sustain that inner silence that eternal unbounded inner reality simultaneously while one is doing things thinking thoughts active eventually that becomes stabilized and it's a permanent state of consciousness and that state of consciousness maharshi called cosmic consciousness the words cosmic consciousness have been used in other ways by other teachers so it's it can be a little bit confusing there's the word in sanskrit um... oh it is the word uh, sakshi which means witness and you can call it witness consciousness. You can say that the, the pure consciousness now is, is understood to be myself. That's, that's my, my real self. You could say the sublime self is that pure, eternal consciousness. A transformation takes place where everything that had previously been considered to be me is seen through and discovered to be just some phenomenal thing going on. My mind, you know, oh, it isn't me. I thought that was me. My little ego that motors around and feels important about itself. You, you realize, oh, that's not what I am. I thought I was this little, little me. The whole psychology, all of the individuality is now seen, experienced in a permanent way as not being what I really am, not being who I really am. From that inner silence, then the whole outer world is seen as being transient, transitory. The way that one describes this may vary according to one's background and and the teaching that one has uh, come through. Some would look at that and just say, it all doesn't exist. It's all just illusion. You know, the ego, the mind, it's all nothing. It just, it isn't real. It's just nothing moving within nothing. And I'm completely beyond that. Or in traditions where this isn't thought of as the self, then it would just be this great vastness is there, and somehow that's my abode. Everything else is is just other than that, and it it has this this unreality about it. Maharshi didn't talk about the manifest in quite such a dismissive uh, tone. He he talked about 200% that we take up residence, as it were, in the, the true self, which is called Atman. And from there, the outer world continues, and we have 100% of the outer and 100% of the inner. So there are, different ways of, there are different ways of talking about that and different ways of approaching it. But it's still the same thing. It's this awakening of the silent, infinite, eternal base within. And then everything else that is outer is seen to be not that. In terms of the personality Subjectively, the personality gets pushed to the surface. You know, I used to think I was, you know, this guy and these characteristics of of personality and so forth, but then when I become what I really am, which is infinite, unbounded, silent, eternal Atman, then I see, oh, those things are kind of on the outside almost. I'm, I'm way, way deep in here, kind of looking out at that, which is out there that's a description of what we're calling cosmic consciousness that's kind of the first permanent awakening it's rare it's extremely uncommon if you just look at the population of people we encounter you know more people that are in that state because you know travel we have circles the, we have the ability to network and and so like-minded people are able to to coalesce But even though it's extremely rare, it's still just one unfoldment. It's just that first permanent awakening. And a very important thing about this is it is a major state of consciousness. And as I said, the nature of a major state of consciousness is it is complete. It is self-sufficient. It has its own perfect, logical structure, if you will, of how everything fits together. And cosmic consciousness is a big deal, okay? If you've been going along overshadowed by the illusory world, um, living in the state of, you could, you could call it, identification, where... Um, Whatever one is involved with that 's what I am you know i 'm a businessman i 'm a you know i 'm a teacher i 'm a carpenter, and that's that's i identified with that and if you take those things away from me, then I feel like my existence is is threatened. You go from that to the state where I am eternal, I am absolute I am unbounded i am untouched by all of this, that's a very big deal. And there's a temptation, if you will. If we don't have this whole map, and that's why I feel that this map is so important, uh, without knowing that that's really just a, a, a way station, you know, that's, what do they call it, a base camp halfway up the mountain. That isn't the whole enchilada. Without that map and in the absolute certainty that I am awakened, because you are, then people will go and teach. And the teachings will often say, and these are valid things to teach, give up the separate self. There's no me. You know, there's, there's, there's nobody there. And there's, there's a lot of that teaching. It's problematic, for one thing, because people will tend to try to create that by somehow trying to erase the mind and trying to erase the ego and trying to erase the personality trying to get rid of all of it in the absence of the direct awakening of that pure awareness and that gets people stranded because they've they've done something to themselves psychologically that is disconnecting them from the only world that they inhabit you know in order for this witnessing this, this I am untouched by everything, awakening to be real, the self has to awaken. You you can't construct that awakening by working on those elements that eventually are going to be transcended. You can only do it by transcending them.
0: And it's very much an experiential thing. It's not conceptual or intellectual. I just want to emphasize that because there's so many people who, you know, they go about it by listening to these teachers and these, reading these books and then dwelling on the concepts and getting kind of a little bit hypnotized by those concepts so familiar that they get good at talking about them. They get good at expressing those concepts and they get on the chat groups and start teaching, you know, and pontificating there. Uh, and
1: it's important to have these these concepts it's important to sense and and know okay there is this ahead of me you know and 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 that's something that i aspire to but it's important not to become attached again to those pointers yeah it's so important
0: that's the old now, zen finger pointing at the moon you know analogy it's yeah it's, yeah. it's not the moon and yeah. you know, why don't you touch a little bit on, you mentioned witnessing, why don't you touch upon the, the notion of witnessing sleep as a sort of an acid test for this actually being an experiential yeah. reality and not just conceptual. Yeah.
1: So, this Atman, this this silent, eternal, infinite self that has awakened in cosmic consciousness, awakens permanently. And we've talked about how pure consciousness is maintained during activity. You know, now, two states of consciousness are being maintained simultaneously, pure consciousness and vishva, you know, waking state, the world. But it also is maintained through dreaming. So you witness your dreams. You know, John Hagelin, when he talks about um, higher states of consciousness, he'll He'll say um, he'll talk about witnessing deep sleep, and he'll say something like, um, it's, um, "It's it's 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 sleep becomes very pleasant." I highly recommend it. John says that. So um, what happens is that that pure consciousness is never lost, even during dreaming, which is a, a clearer kind of experience because. You know, you wake up from that and you think, oh, I, there was somehow I was, I was awake, I was there in, in my true self, and I was dreaming. Somehow the mind was, was doing the dreaming thing. But then deep sleep becomes essentially the same as the Turiya state. Deep sleep becomes what samadhi would have been before the capacity to maintain pure consciousness together with um, activity. So that silence which is beyond time and space is there even during deepest sleep and different people experience that with different amounts of clarity. Some people will just say, you know, I knew I was there the whole time. Other people will say, well the way I know that I was there is the continuity. It was there because you don't experience time deep sleep. And there was no sense that I was ever not there. That thread of self is completely unbroken through all of, you know, like the, like the, the thread in a rosary that goes through the beads of the rosary and, it, and it's completely continuous like that.
0: Anyway, it's a, good, it's a good acid test because you can't maintain a concept while you're sleeping. So if this realization is conceptual, it's not really the realization and, and the sort of the criterion of having actually experientially woke, awoken to it is that oh, awareness is not going to be lost throughout the night. Throughout the and
1: awakening is exactly the right word for it. You awaken. When you awake from dreaming, you don't expect to wake up. You know, I mean, you may start to have, you know, a little waking and going back to sleep and a little waking going back to sleep. And that happens with this also. You know, you may have glimpses and those glimpses may become more frequent and, and longer where you, you go into that and out of it and in it and out of it. But you never know from minute to minute. You just wake up, you know, oh, you wake up and you look at the clock. Oh, it's six o'clock. OK, I guess I got to get up or, oh, it's four thirty. I guess I'll go back to sleep. You know, that's what awakening is like. You cannot build an awakening in the mind by working with it intellectually and and conceptually in, in trying to, to create a, a model of, an, of awakening. So then, from there, you have the self, which is eternal, absolute, unchanging. You have the world, which is material, objective, it's out there, and it is not eternal and unchanging. From there, a very similar progression takes place as the progression when one transcends thought and eventually reaches the self, which is that first our perception of the world is on the surface of things. But because now there's this connection with the deepest level within, that also creates the capacity to see more deeply as the perception of the outer world becomes deeper and more subtle and more subtle the same thing happens that we were talking about in the beginning, which is that the attention goes to more and more pleasing levels. Subtler is more pleasing. Subtler is more unbounded. Subtler is closer to that pure level where everything is bliss. But
0: now we're not talking about during meditation. We're talking about during activity. And we're not talking about inner. We're talking about eyes open, seeing the world
1: seeing finer and finer and finer values of the world, of the objects of perception. And the heart opens up. That's a very powerful force. The the heart can overtake anything. You begin to approach that same silence that you found within yourself at the subtlest level of what you see outside. And every perception, every contact, every experience of anything in the material world, even the scolding of a black crow, becomes delightful. And as that develops, the, character, the characteristic of devotion opens up. And that, that devotion can manifest itself in infinitely many different ways. That will be a reflection of, of each person's own personality it may come out as a deep devotion in a religious sense and the concept of god or a particular form of god that is precious to that that individual that awakening individual it may be like that it may be in a more generalized sort of way that just the heart goes out and is completely overtaken with devotion to the perfection and the beauty of everything that, that is um, encountered. That is called God-consciousness in the way Maharshi describes this. God-consciousness, as it develops, it involves the psychology. It involves the whole personality. It's a territory where it's not as easy to, to find clear delineations, you know, clear transition points from one thing to another, that experience of finer and finer values of perception of the outer world, that can start even before cosmic consciousness. That devotion, that may be already very well developed in a person, and it just simply deepens and comes to its fulfillment uh, somewhere along the way. It's, It's more of a continuum that reaches its fulfillment in the awakening what Maharshi called Unity Consciousness or Brahman Consciousness.
0: might be added that, you know, even though some people are very devotional by nature and, and develop to a great extent before self-realization, there's a certain kind of a impediment that, to the full blossoming of that if the self hasn't been realized, because who is it that's appreciating this thing. You know, if I don't know who I am, who is it that appreciates the, the tree, or the flower, or the crow? So, so you know, the, the, the devotion can really begin to, begin to take off after the, the Self has been realized, because there's a, there's a foundation for it.
1: And ultimately what that devotion wants is, is to be unified, to be one. And that unification can only happen on the ground of the fully awakened Self. Because, as we talked in the beginning, there's only one consciousness. And on that level, everything is connected. To be united with my beloved, to be united with my God, that happens on the level of unbounded, pure consciousness, which has to be awakened in order for all of that devotion to really come to its fulfillment. Here is a beautiful thing. It's impossible. The world is the material world, and the senses are the material senses. And they can take our perception to finer and finer and finer values, but they're still the senses, and the world is still the world. It's the heart that does this impossible thing of bridging across that impossible chasm, and unites everything in the entire universe within the self. It's the heart that does that. So now we're talking about the seventh major state of consciousness. And this, I would say, is the full awakening with an asterisk. It never ends. It always will keep unfolding. But after this, the unfoldment is just going to be expansion and deepening, integration, but that also never ends. So the seventh major state of consciousness is the state of consciousness where, at one time, there was the self and there was the non-self, inner and outer, real, unreal, absolute, relative, eternal, temporal. But in unity consciousness, in Brahman consciousness, myself, is the self of all. There's only one self. And in Sanskrit, and we see this, I was going through from from the, the Vedic perspective, we had the names in Sanskrit of these four states of consciousness. Fifth state of consciousness is when Atma is fully awake. Atma is that infinity, that infinite unbounded self within. And then we have one of the great sayings, one of the Mahavakyas, Atma is Brahman. Brahman is the great. It is the all-inclusive. And one discovers that this Atman, which was once inner, is actually all-encompassing. And there's nothing that is outside of the self. Everything is within myself. Everything is myself. There is no other. And now I and my beloved are truly one that's the seventh major state of consciousness some people will experience these sequentially and they'll be very clear and someone can say yeah there was this period of time where I felt really completely uninvolved with everything and I just there was this great silence and everything just went on on the outside and it just was like that and then that changed into something else and I started to have a different relationship with the world and things became more fascinating And then that changed into something else, and I found that it was all me, you know. You'll have people describe like that. Some people awaken all at once. Some people awaken right into Brahman consciousness. Some people awaken spontaneously without any practice at all. They may go through some sort of a crisis that that brings them out of the world and, and brings them to the inner self. There may be no such thing. They may be just motoring along and poof, whoa, you know, what what happened? And there may be a gradation where it really isn't quite clear anywhere along the way because one thing just very gradually, I think you called that the oozing pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's not as though this description is somehow going to just unmistakably describe, you know, point by point exactly how each person is going to experience this. But I feel completely that this is just an unfoldment of human development that's in the DNA. You know, it may express itself a little differently in, in this person and a little differently in that person. But I do feel very strongly that this unfoldment is, is built into a human nervous system. It's, it's, it's a fundamental part of, of human life.
0: You mentioned that you know some people might awaken just awaken to Brahman just like that. If they do, then uh, is there a sort of a catch-up period where uh, certain developmental stages that ordinarily would precede awakening to Brahman have to be brought into line, and, and so they there is anyway. Um, so, and it,
1: it this also is different for different people. Let me define something here because I'm using the word Brahman and. In orthodox usage, there's more than one way to use that word, so I, I want to be clear about this. Sometimes it's used to refer to an underlying, all-encompassing, universal reality that is sort of out there. Uh, and that's not the sense that I'm using it. That that might We might be able to call that para, para-Brahman. Um, but Maharshi said... We, we also have this Mahavakya, Brahman is the knower, very important. Pragyanam Brahma, Brahman is the knower. Maharshi said, there is no Brahman without a knower of Brahman. There is no Brahman without a human knower of Brahman. Brahman is a human being in Brahman consciousness. And there are several things that are important about that. One is, Brahman is all-encompassing. Brahman is that which accepts everything and rejects nothing. You know, And there's a fairly well-known saying, Brahman is the eater of everything. Brahman devours everything. It does that, it devours everything as the human knower of Brahman, such that All of the territory of a life is incorporated into that wholeness. And in the process, this this is kind of an interesting thing because the experience of Brahman consciousness is complete. That's the nature of a state of consciousness. And the nature of Brahman consciousness is it's all-inclusive. It contains everything. Everything is now within Brahman, and you can't find an out there. You can't find an outer anywhere. What about things that still need to be worked out you know what about what you were saying is there is there some catching up that needs to be done in general everything is with self but whatever needs to be done whatever project there might be you know whether I have to work through my relationship with my parents or whether I have to develop uh, some skills in the world or whatever those things are Uh, whatever sort of work there is to be done. That all happens within Brahman. There's a paradox. Brahman is complete. Brahman is infinite. And Brahman, as that infinity, cannot be any different than that complete infinity. And Brahman is ever-expanding. It's completely paradoxical. and, And That's the nature, uh, especially, of that highest state of awakening, that every paradox, the world doesn't exist, and there it is. Every paradox you can think of, just cheerfully, happily, with absolutely no problem whatsoever, is there within Brahman. Paradoxes are are no problem for Brahman.
0: You know, you've probably heard me say on some of these uh, shows that uh, I, I love the word paradox, and I probably ought to get a T-shirt made with the word paradox on it. Well, somebody sent me one this last week. I should have. Oh, won. great! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so thank yeah. you, whoever that was. I'll, I'll wear it to the Science of Non-Duality conference. Yeah. <laughs> this
1: brings up the uh, very important territory of, of laya vidya.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, and just before you, just to give a concrete illustration to what you just said. Everything is concluded within Brahman, and ouch, damn it, I just stubbed my toe, and that happens with within the wholeness, within Brahman, but so that wholeness that Brahman doesn't negate relative experiences, some of which can be you know quite difficult
1: yeah and and I am everything, and everything is within myself, and it's a complete well oneness, and I've got this attitude that I still have that I just just isn't really very good and i just need to work on myself because i still have that and i'm everything people come along and think because they have a preconception that an awakened state is going to be this pure pristine perfection that they assume okay i'm awakened i don't have any more work to do i'm done i'm cooked so then you you see people you know kind of getting themselves into predicaments because Maybe there is something there that has come along that they really should be working on. The word leshavidya is familiar to people that are familiar with Maharshi's teaching, but it, it may be less familiar to others. The word leshavidya means uh, the faint remains of ignorance. Leshav is faint remains and avidya is ignorance. Combine them and you have the word leshavidya. Maharshi said, there is no Brahman without Leishavidya. He said it's a cruelty, it's a cruel thing to say that Leishavidya is the basis of Brahman consciousness. You can't, now I'm, I'm not quoting Maharshi, you can't be Brahman, which is the totality lived by a human being. You can't be Brahman unless you still retain enough illusion to continue to imagine that you're a separate human being. You can't be Brahman without that faint remains. You know, somehow the universe, the unbounded, infinite consciousness, manages to see through these eyes and type with these fingers on this keyboard. And that's possible through the agency of So
0: Right, because if you really wanted to boil it down to the ultimate reality, there are no eyes, there is no keyboard. You know, we just uh, all
1: melt into yeah, into it's, oneness. it's just sort of
0: homogenous wholeness with no differentiation, no distinction. But there, if if that's going to be the reality, then there's no functioning. There's no living.
1: This is much more fun. See, here's here's a really important thing. Everything is as it should be. Everything is perfect. We have this kind of militant way of talking about the mind. You know, you must destroy the mind. And when the mind only when the mind is destroyed will you be liberated only when the ego is destroyed will you be liberated the mind is part of the perfection of the universe the ego you know that's a that's a bad word I, I, you know oh my goodness you know I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to use the e word the ego is part of the perfection of the universe as these states of consciousness unfold one transcends mind and the ego, one sees through them, one, one gets, oh, these are illusory, these aren't the real me, but it is through the agency of these illusions that it's possible to become enlightened, that it's possible to become fully awakened. Now, people that are familiar with this, this teaching about Leisha Vidya often have the idea, oh, if someone is enlightened, then that faint remains of ignorance, that must be just some really very mystical kind of ignorance. That ignorance must be something completely different from anything that I know of that I would call ignorance. But it isn't. It's just ignorance. However much ignorance you brought along with you, when you cross that threshold and awaken into Brahman, that's Leishavidya.
0: Oh, really? That amount doesn't get diminished uh, further over time? Absolutely, it does.
1: And this is how Brahman continues to expand. This is Brahman devouring everything.
0: Yeah, so the remains can get fainter and fainter, but there's always got to be some remains. uh, They do. And at first, it
1: may be a lot. You know, there's in the Zen tradition, I think they say, for the first 10 years after somebody awakens, you kind of keep your eye on them because they, they kind of stink of enlightenment and they're not quite, you know, completely ripened yet. Well Lai Vidya comes along. Now how, how could this work? How could you have the, the ignorance all completely thinned down to almost nothing and then awaken? You know, you're just gonna awaken and that's gonna burn away. It's a it's a progression. Ego thins out and, and we can find in, in some exemplary teachers that the ego was just so thin, it just, just just the faintest gossamer thin amount. But still, they they would be interested in things, they would have motivations, they clearly knew where and who and what they were in relation to the outer world. But there's there's always going to be something there. A couple of words that are helpful are ahamkara and asmita. Ahamkara means the sense of I and mine. And that's the Sanskrit word that often is used to translate ego. It's just the little me. Asmita refers to the sort of accumulation of conditionings that color that little me in ways that give the ego a bad reputation, you know, that make it egotistical. And asmita becomes thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. But ahankara if you look into the vedic literature ahankara is, is part of nature you know you have the eight prakrtis of nature which the finest is um, buddhi or some sometimes called mahat and then ahankara and then manas and then the five uh, senses or the five elements well that's throughout everything that's part of that's baked in the cake i want to just talk for a minute about specifically about ramana maharshi and Some things that uh, David Godman said last week that I think are quite significant. I was quoting Ramana Maharshi when I said, the ego must be destroyed to be liberated. The the mind must be destroyed to be liberated. I wrote this down because I wanted to be sure to get it word for word. Uh, This is David Godman quoting. He said, when Bhagavan said mind has to go, he's not talking about thoughts, which is interesting. Bhagavan would often sit there, and someone would walk in. He'd say, oh, I was thinking about you, and you showed up. Thoughts were still there. Mind, for him, is the mechanism that coordinated all your thoughts, decided it was a person inside a body, and saw a world outside of itself. That, I really feel, is is the key to this. He said that the whole superstructure is a creation. It's a badly running, badly functioning program in your brain, if you like, This whole idea, there's someone in there who sees something out there, that the person in there has to choose how to decide and interact with what's out there. He said, that's mind. He said, the world as an external entity ceases. That's Brahman consciousness. That's Brahman consciousness. And clearly, there were mental processes going on. I would look at that and say, well, Okay, I would say Ramana had a mind, but Ramana is defining mind as that agency that divides from outer. Well, ego does that also. So what happens is mind, if I'm allowed to use the word, is absorbed into Brahman. It dissolves in Brahman. Paradox, even dissolved in Brahman, it continues to be able to perform its role. We can still have thoughts ego is absorbed into Brahman, and I think Ramana would say the ego has been destroyed. I don't think that there's a contradiction. I don't think there's a conflict. The other thing is also in David Godman's interview, I believe I heard him say quite clearly, Ramana understood and taught that in the ordinary state of ignorance, it's useless to try to wrestle with the mind and try to wrestle with the ego, it's useless. It's only by self. What was the phrase? Inquiry. Um, self-inquiry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. atma
1: Yeah, atma-vichara. It's only by atma-vichara that you can destroy the ego. It's only by atma-vichara that you can destroy the mind. I agree a hundred percent with this little caveat that the word "destroy" is a very sort of militant word. They be, they get absorbed into. The wholeness and inner and outer is destroyed there's no inner there's no outer
0: drop a sugar cube into some water and it gets destroyed but it's the sugar is still in there
1: yeah 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 and it's still able to to have the taste of sweetness just something that might be interesting to do i've collected three or four descriptions from people that report that they are awakened and i haven't attached the names with these but some of them are people that you know and even have interviewed one person said a flood of instantaneous knowing came all at once that you and I and all of us are that no one higher no one lower love is the calling card of this reality and the same person as she went through the stages of this went through a stage where she very strongly had the feeling I don't exist there's no me you know, the ego is completely gone. There's, there's, there's nothing. There's, there's only this vastness. And she said, in the beginning, I was so annoyed with this leftover personality because people attach themselves to the idea that they must completely wring out every last drop of individuality. But you can't. And people get stranded there. And there's a problem that comes up, and it's, it's a big problem. Because if you're in that witnessing from Atma state where you can say, you know, all there is is this vastness and everything doesn't exist. You know, there's no me, there's no ego. If you're in that state and you're indoctrinated into the, I'll use the word dogma, that awakening means there's nobody there. If you're you're really attached to that, then you're not going to be open to the possibility that maybe there's still an ego because that's antithetical to what you believe. I'm awakened, therefore, I have no ego.
0: And conversely, I detect some ego here, therefore, I couldn't be awakened.
1: Also true. Or I detect some ego in you, therefore, you couldn't be awakened. There are situations that arise where a teacher is just, so confident and so confident and the people around him are saying well this this is really egotistical this guy is and once in a while you you have a very courageous teacher who realizes oh wait a minute i've been deluding myself here i actually do have a personality and there actually is an ego in there but this individual was not so tenacious with that, but that way of looking at that stage of awakening, the, the way station, you know, the, the base camp station uh, stage. She came in with that orientation and then looking around, said, well, there's still somebody here. I thought it was completely gone. And it becomes more subtle because obviously you're, you're working on the level of pure awareness where these things are just functioning within awareness. They're not these hard, you know, solid material things like they once had been. But she said, in the beginning, I was so annoyed by this leftover personality. I love that. Someone else said, uh, this is someone you know. You can probably tell me who it is. When I awakened, I saw God is not separate from me. God is the ground of my very being. Everywhere I look, I see God is in everything and everything is in God. Okay, you can tell me who said that. That was... Francis, yeah, Francis Bennett, whose whole life was oriented towards devotion and and lived for a number of years as as a Catholic monk. And then one day, this is the last one, one day the world took on a luminous glow as I was walking. The trees sparkled with amazing light and the colors became brilliant and more vibrant than in our normal reality. I could see my feet stepping on the pavement, yet I was not moving. I passed a woman on the street and felt immense love for her. I felt her as myself. Cars passing by reflected brilliant light off their bumpers that seemed almost blinding. Everything was moving within me, the trees, the woman, and the cars. I was all of this. Someone spoke to me and I heard myself speak, yet I didn't say a word. I was not moving, yet walking and talking was happening. I knew myself as stillness through which all movement occurs samadhi bliss grace exquisite beauty this world is the other world the other world is this world and it exists as us this brought a vast opening of the heart that now knew itself as the totality including the body mind and the world no separation anywhere Every, all is perfectly divine nice
0: who yeah. said that one
1: i haven't got her name clear in my mind it's a it's a wonderful lovely woman someone that i that i Found on social media that just friended me about two weeks ago. Yeah. So that description, by the way, contains descriptions of God consciousness and clear description of Brahman consciousness, because she's talking about seeing the finest level of the relative, and, and everything looks luscious. There's a sort of a luminous. Golden character.
0: glasses, as Mara she used to say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People also will experience this in slightly different ways and to different degrees, and also it habituates. So you know, you don't just walk around and you're like, "Oh my God, you know, where's my sunglasses?" (laughs) Like that. But the world retains a a character of magic about it.
0: Beautiful. Well, that might actually almost be a good point to wrap up on.
1: I have one more thing I'd I'd like to give you here. I'm gonna I'm gonna get religious with you. Okay. Because I I love this.
0: Praise the Lord.
1: Hallelujah. This is from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, If those who lead you say, See, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known. And you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. And just to be clear, because he says the kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you, in the same gospel, Jesus said to them, when you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, then you will
0: enter the kingdom. Well, thanks, Jerry. This has been great, and we're going to do it again one of these days because there's lots to talk about. Uh, but we'll, like P.T. Barnum said, leave, leave him wanting more. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, let me just wrap it up. I've been talking to my old friend Jerry Freeman. Jerry does not have a website, but he does have a Facebook page, and I'll be linking to that and he's very active on Facebook, writes and talks about a lot of this stuff. Anything else about yourself you want to say here that people won't find on the on your BatGap Gap page?
1: I think I gave you links for the David Lynch Foundation.
0: Yeah, I'll be linking uh, to that stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. So as long as those are there so people can look a little further if if they're interested in T M or what the Lynch Foundation is doing. Wonderful programs with school children, hundreds of thousands of school children learning T M right now in South, South America, America Yeah. the United States. It's wonderful things happening. As long as those links are there, I think we're in good shape. Good.
0: All righty. And uh, for those listening or watching, this is an ongoing interview series. So they're Jerry's, I think, number 199 or something. And they're all archived on YouTube. But it's easier to kind of navigate them on batgap.com because I have indices. They're both chronological and alphabetical. And you can explore all the interviews that have taken place. You can also subscribe either to the YouTube channel to have YouTube notify you when new ones are posted, but you can also subscribe on batgap.com to be notified by email each time a new one is posted. There's also a discussion group on Batgap, which is entitled Forum, and I'll be linking to Jerry's page in that discussion group from his page on Batgap. so I'm sure the discussion will get rolling and Jerry will participate. There's a donate button there, which I very much appreciate people clicking. And not only clicking, but actually donating (laughs) if they can. (laughs) And there's an audio podcast of this. So if you don't have the time to sit in front of your computer and watch interviews and see Jerry's beautiful face with his Connecticut background, you can at least listen to the audio while you're commuting or something. And so you'll see a link to that um, on every interview. So good. That's it. Uh, Next week, I'll be at the Science and Non-Duality Conference and we'll probably be doing an interview or two out there, maybe with Francis Bennett, maybe Igor Kufiav, maybe Ed Musica. We'll see what happens. So thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Jerry.